Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. This is Writing Class Radio, true stories from our actual memoir writing class and a little bit about how to write your own stories. I'm Andrea Askowitz, the teacher of the class. And I'm Allison Langer, a student in the class. Together, we produce this podcast to bring you into our writing class. I love working out my shit. Well, I don't actually love it, but it does force me to keep at it. Andrea loves thinking about writing and ways to make stories stronger. I love the heart. Andrea loves the art. Writing Class Radio is equal parts art and heart. Before we get started, we want to share a voice memo we got from Phoebe Scott, a listener in Tennessee. This is her response to the prompt, how did it end? It was sometime in September, I think. It must have been because I live in Tennessee, so it was still unbelievably hot at midnight when I was kissing my now ex-boyfriend goodbye in his front yard. Because of how things have been going with him lately, during this kiss I was traveling back in time. Back to a time when kissing him was all I ever thought about, all I ever wanted to do. Back to a time when I felt like he actually wanted to be with me and not just because I was reputably sleazy. Back when he got drunk at his cousin's wedding and he was telling everyone that we were next. Back to a time when we both really believed that. Eventually, though, I snap back and I can feel his lips moving against mine. That's the thing about time travel. You always come back. I remember trying to fake like I was all there, when instead I was trying to figure out what to do and he pulled away and told me that he loved me, like always. Because you shouldn't say I love you to someone you can't stand the taste of. Right? Mama raised you right. Always smile and be polite. You are a gentleman. Thank you, Phoebe. Keep going with that. And to all of you, keep sending us your voice memos. This episode is about endings. I have the hardest time ending an essay. Man, don't you? I mean, I get so far up the ass of my piece that I just lose sight of the end. You know? Does it happen to you? I mean, are you saying that, like, you start a piece and then you're like, where is this going? Oh, shit, I don't know where this is going. Yes, that's totally part of the process. The best way to get to the end of a story is to jump into it actually not knowing what the end is. It's like you have to step into the unknown in writing and in life. Oh, my God, that is so goofy. That sounds like a bumper sticker. If you knew the end when you started writing, why write? That's what writing is about. It's figuring out what you've come to say. You need to do that work. You need to be up your ass. Sometimes for a really long time. Ooh. Well, you're the one who <laughs> you're the one who put <laughs> just, it that way. Let's, let's, let's just stop while we're ahead. All right. So my other problem is that I have such a shitty memory that I end up writing about things that are going on in my life right now. Parenting issues or, you know, boyfriend issues or not boyfriend issues and trying to date <laughs> online and all that kind of stuff. Like I'm in it right now. So it's really hard for me to figure out how to end it because it's still going on. I don't know that it's because you have a shitty memory. Um, I think that you're just working out long-term issues right now. A lot of your writing is about parenting. It's about your mom, you and your mom's relationship, your relationship with your children. 
But your problem with ending a story is a common problem because sometimes we need distance, right? Like to write about something that you're in the midst of is really hard to do. It's not impossible, but it's hard. And so sometimes you need years to go by to then be like, wait, what did I do? What happened to me seven years ago or what happened to me 10 years ago? But another way to deal with an issue that you're dealing with now is to think about like, why am I writing this now? That's true. I mean, why now is a good one for sure. Um, Let me think. I do have another problem too. I always, I'm trying to end this story and I don't want to be like, bam, bang over the head. And I'm trying to be really subtle. But then I take my story to class and I read it and you're like, I don't get it. God. Yeah. Do I tell the reader exactly what I've come to say? And I read stories like that all the time. Like, and I want to do it too. Like in conclusion, I will tell you that now I am a healthy, well person. And you know, that's probably not true. But um, a better way to deal with that is to end in a scene that shows the change. Joyce Maynard talked about that in episode 30, coming to a landing place. So like we're not done maybe with the issues that we're working out, but we can think of a moment that shows the change in our character. I just thought of another problem that I have with my own writing is like wanting to end a story like on a high note to show the reader that like, hey, now I'm okay. And I think that's problematic because sometimes I'm not and sometimes the the narrator isn't. So that's a tendency that I see all the time in our class. Like people are like, yeah, and I'm triumphant. But I think it's better to resist that and just write the truth. On today's episode, we have two stories that I think ended really well. First up, Liz Mesa reads her story, Closure. Busto and I started breaking up over coffee on a cold spring morning. He'd been unemployed since the previous year, and over the last few months, I had been paying for most things. His metro card, our lingering brunches in Williamsburg, the entrance to museums, little luxuries like tickets to see Chromeo perform, a sold-out show at Terminal 5. It had become tense between us. As I prepared breakfast, I could feel his eyes on me, following my slightest movement. I carefully poured from the French press into a big mug and passed it to him. He cleared his throat and told me he had big news. He had bought a new bike at a specialty shop in Brooklyn, a few blocks from my apartment. He'd had it customized and considered it a steal at $5,000. I stared. With what money? He answered, with my savings. It was quiet between us. He quickly took one last sip, then wrapped his checkered scarf around his neck before kissing my forehead and walking out my door, a morning ritual before he rode the L train to his own place. I walked into the bedroom, kicked open a suitcase, and packed in everything it could carry. I hailed a taxi in the corner and directed it to JFK as I swiped through my phone for same flight deals. I'm going home, I said when he answered my call. I don't have the money to follow you. I hung up before he could hear the sobs that escaped me. I was a wounded animal in the backseat of a Rastafarian's cab. I was grateful for his quick decision to play Marley's Three Little Birds. Now I'll always say my tears taste like that song. Within hours, I had made it to Miami where I collapsed and sobbed into my parents' arms as soon as they opened the front door. Both of them startled to find me there, a crumpled, soggy mess arriving to them just before midnight. 
Over the weeks that followed, my parents mediated the phone calls between Miami and New York, where Booth Doe and I screamed heinous accusations at one another. My grandmother pressed me to make it work, despite the many fights she'd broken up between us over the years. Once, when Busto had pushed me into a wall at my parents' home, it had been my grandmother who had tried to help me up. I was so disoriented that when I saw a hand coming towards me, I bit into it as hard as I could. It had been hers, not his. Despite all this, because he was studying law and the expectation was that I'd be a great journalist one day, because we were both young, imposing figures with strong DNAs who had the potential to make beautiful babies, because we had been raised in the same city, been given the same education, the same privileges, grew out of successful Cuban families which instilled the same values in us. Because of these things, and despite the drinking and violence and destruction we seemed to bring into each other's lives, because of these things, my family wanted us together. I wanted us together. I had never been with someone who was his brand of handsome. He would stop and stare handsome, take home three numbers at a bar without asking for them handsome. Waitresses would ignore me as they took the order from him at restaurants. Women he didn't know would send him provocative Facebook messages. Once, at a party, a friend of a friend gave him an over-the-top lap dance as I stood by, not knowing how to react. Busto had graduated from a private all-boys Jesuit school he'd attended since the age of 13 and gone to a state college that was a 10-minute drive from the house he'd grown up in. He'd held on to some religious conviction and didn't lose his virginity until the age of 21 on the sweeping balcony of my parents' South Beach penthouse after a raucous New Year's Eve party. I was the one that made him strip, the wind furiously whipping at our bodies as we stared at the glittering lights of downtown in the distance. I'd been the one to whisper what he should do. I returned to New York City, heart still hurting. I called him, he answered. We made plans to meet up at the bar across the street from his apartment. I arrived early, sitting at a table where I could look through the bar's window into his, sheer curtains, soft lighting, the edge of an iron bed frame. The light in his room went out and I knew I'd see him, his tall white frame, messy brown hair, sharp blue eyes, walking through the door within minutes. I steadied myself by gulping the two shots of tequila in front of me, raising my fingers in a peace sign to the bartender, who quickly brought over two more. Busto smiled as he removed his jacket and sat across from me. Cheers, I raised my shot, to a civilized departure. Between you and me, never. We drank again and again throughout the night and avoided talking about the last time we'd seen each other, choosing to play darts instead. After years of playing together, we'd become good enough to hit near the bullseye every time, despite our rapidly blurring vision, and though we were both far away, lost deep inside our individual thoughts. A burst of noise brought us back. The energy in the bar had become chaotic as people jumped from their tables and blocked the screens on the TVs mounted across the walls, breaking news. Osama bin Laden was dead. Busto stood beside me, his face mimicking the others utter shock 
We were, me and him, in New York City for this. We both remembered seeing the towers fall, and now we saw them rise, all the people around us crowded into this tiny bar. I wanted to cry, but we cheered, everyone in that place. Something had changed in all of us. I now know that closure can come in many forms. When the bill came, I paid. We made it up the stairs and into his bedroom. I crawled into the softness of his sheets where the unfamiliar smell of honey and lavender surrounded me, other hints of a sweet spice. A woman's jacket hung on one of his bedposts. He caught my stare and laid next to me. He held me as I asked everything I'd ever been too afraid to ask. Do you even find me attractive? Have you ever really loved me? Have you used me all this time? We'd always settled fights through the pleasure and pain we'd inflict on each other on that bed, but there were no winners this time. We cried, our tears soaking through my hair, drowning in his pillow. I had loved him as best as I knew how to love in my early 20s. The next morning, at a Jewish deli a couple blocks away, we took our time finishing our coffee. He paid for breakfast before hailing me a cab. As the car neared the Williamsburg Bridge, I looked back through the rearview mirror, he had followed on his bike, and I wondered if he would follow the whole way back to my apartment before he slowed down and turned away. If you stay forever in arms reach, you may never see the sun. I may never walk again. This is Andrea. Liz did something so well. She did lots of things well, but she ended with an image. She ended in a scene. I can totally see this really handsome man riding his fancy bike in New York City traffic and then turning away. Not a happy ending, but it's an ending that conveys change. I love it. Also, her last scene ends then. It was 2011, so there's some distance. She doesn't show us who she is now, who she went on to become after that relationship. Although I wanted that. Except that, like, it's it's the end of, it's a natural ending. Like, Osama Bin Laden dies, natural ending, and the end of the relationship. So I was okay with it. It was satisfying enough. But I'm dying to know more about Liz Mesa. I want to know if she's still doing these same patterns. I love that question. And I think that she is telling us by choosing to note that her relationship ended on the night Osama bin Laden died, that she has not actually changed. She is suggesting in that moment that the world changed, but we know now, six years later, that the world really didn't change. So I mean, maybe the, Liz is telling us, you know what, in retrospect, now I know I'm writing the story today, I didn't really change either. I'm still dealing with the same demons but we can't know that from the story and that is a huge like thing for the reader to come up with i mean maybe you came up with that but i'm not smart enough to come up with that i was like she's over this dude she's not going to be his you know punching bag anymore she's done and she is moving forward for me it was a comparison of a natural ending the death and the death of the relationship 
I mean, we disagree. I totally, I we get We need to get Liz Missa on the phone, and we need to figure out what the fuck she was writing about. So maybe the story is more about closure and me and Busto being there together in this moment in time. Um, so maybe it doesn't have to be about changing the world, but about changing the people and the bar that night. It just felt bigger than life. We all left with a sense of, this is done. We can move on. Allison was right. Osama bin Laden died. The relationship died. The end. That's a great ending. Do we know if Liz Messa changed? Stay tuned for Liz Messa stories in future episodes. Hey, writers. For the last 45 years, I've been going to tennis clinics to practice forehand, backhand serves. What does this have to do with writing? Well, practice, I've learned in the last 45 years, is what it takes to get good at anything. And that's why Writing Class Radio hosts a tips clinic, a writing tips clinic. We do this every second Saturday so that we can all practice going to scene, writing like we speak, omitting needless words, everything that it takes to become great or at least better at writing. So join us every second Saturday from 12 noon to 1 Easter time on Zoom. To join, go to writingclassradio.com and click the link for the tips clinic. It's $10 and believe me, it's a lot cheaper than a tennis clinic. See you there. Sometimes asking the question, why am I writing this now, can bring you to the end. Like in our next story by student Aaron Curtis. His story is up after the break. Here's a word from our sponsor, Gold Valley Consulting. I'm in the studio with Christina Baldor. We do all of the annoying things for your business that you don't like to do, like bookkeeping, setting up your accounting system, recruiting. My favorite thing to do is work with small organizations like Writing Class Radio, um, so you guys should definitely hire me, and any other uh, nonprofits. So I really like helping people fundraise and find board members and things like that. I like the numbers. <laughs> Here's what I know about Christina Valdor. She really likes spreadsheets. I do. I love spreadsheets. My favorite thing to do on like a Saturday morning is just sit with Excel, like Google some stuff and figure out why something isn't working. We hired Christina to help with our admin. We hate admin. Christina loves it. To make your business function better and make your life easier, contact Christina. Email cbaldor at goldvalleyconsulting.com. That's C-B-A-L-D-O-R at goldvalleyconsulting.com. Welcome back. This is Andrea. We're talking about endings. Here's Aaron Curtis with his story, Lost Child. In second grade, I decided to kill myself. It came as a tremendous relief. Every day for a month, I wore button-down shirts and a red blazer that was part of a Halloween costume. I gave away my favorite toys to classmates. I wanted people to have good memories of me when I was gone. I brought a steak knife to my room, but I couldn't summon the courage to stab myself. 
I tied the belt from my bathrobe around my neck, but my body weight pulled the hook from the ceiling. I tied the belt to my doorknob instead, then panicked when the fabric cut into my neck. I opened the window above my bed. I unlatched the pane on both sides and slid it up. I curled into the window and looked at the snow-covered ground 25 feet below me. I was eight years old. I leaned forward and dropped, closing my eyes before impact. I opened my eyes and saw black sky. It looked killing height, but it wasn't. I have no idea what my mother thought when she came to get me for dinner and found the bedroom door locked. I have no idea what she thought when she heard me yelling at her from the other side, but I imagine my voice sounded far away. From outside the bedroom, from the ground, I yelled at her to use a screwdriver to unlock the door. I imagine the room was cold because I'd let winter in. Looking up from the ground, my window was a square of light, then my mother's silhouette blocked it out. What happened? I jumped, I said. Why? I imagine she asked because I was the type of kid who wore a blanket as a cape and plastic vampire teeth and went around biting people. I imagine she thought I'd say I wanted to fly. Instead, I told her I wanted to kill myself. Mom came down, let me in the front door, and led me to the kitchen table. Dad, my brother, and my sister sat, staring at their plates. I joined them. We ate in silence. Two years later, we all started counseling at a center that specialized in alcoholic families. After one week, my brother decided he liked pot and alcohol better than therapy. At 17, he dropped out of 10th grade and left home. I was 10 years old when my mother and I started taking the bus to therapy. The long commute home gave mom plenty of time to question me about what happened in group. We did exercises to get in touch with our feelings, identify our feelings, and express our feelings. I hated it. I had spent my whole life burying my feelings before they could even register. Group wanted me to dig those feelings up, identify them, and express them. Then afterwards, mom wanted to chat about it. After a year in the program, my sister still struggled with sobriety. She was 16 when she went to a rehab facility. She came back a different person, but she picked up her old habits soon enough. At 17, she dropped out of 10th grade and left home. Meanwhile, I killed a pillow with a wiffle ball bat in group therapy, and they called it a breakthrough. I asked my mother how much longer I would have to go to group. Well, it took you 13 years to get like this, Mom said. Maybe it will take another 13 years for you to get well. Get like this, I thought. And who made me like this, Mom? Was it Dad the drunk or Mom the enabler? Therapy taught me these terms. Children born into alcoholic families have textbook roles that they play. I was the third born, called the lost child. The lost child has no feelings. The lost child lives in a fantasy world where everything is good. The lost child is so busy trying not to cause problems that they isolate themselves from everyone. The lost child is a suicide risk. I read the description of a lost child and I hate that I'm not unique and special. 
that a psychologist can summon up the most hurtful truth of my existence in a few scant paragraphs. Hating the role doesn't stop me from fitting the role. Sometimes it feels like I'll never be human. In middle school, I started painting and writing poetry not just as something a kid does to kill time, but to help express myself. Paul, my one-on-one counselor, included my poetry in a book he wrote on families struggling with alcoholism. I described our inability to talk as choking on unbreathable air. On Bank, the Onondaga County Savings Bank, hung my self-portrait in their lobby in an effort to raise awareness of alcoholism. In it, my eyes are wide with pain, colors pull my face in all directions, and my mouth is stretched into a scream. When the local NBC News affiliate interviewed me about it, I explained the most important part of looking at it. The scream is vividly expressed, but you can't hear it. After five years in therapy, I managed to identify and express my anger. I yelled at my parents and told them I was angry. After seven years of therapy, I stopped reacting to life like a lost child and started reacting like a person. I graduated from group. Only there is no graduation, no cure. There's just a constant fight not to fall back into old habits. Patterns engraved on your heart when it's new are easy to find again. It's easy to slip into those old grooves and use them to navigate when life gets hard. It's so easy to get lost. Like when my girlfriend of eight years cheated on me after we'd been married for two months and I forgave her immediately. I buried my anger. I pretended we didn't have problems. I threw myself into work. When that marriage died, you could have written, I'm fine, on the tombstone. I realized that if I wanted to be happy and healthy again, I would have to stop being lost. When I remarried, my new love, Becky, brought a son from her first marriage. We would disagree over how to raise him, and rather than speak my mind, I'd say nothing. Or she would act distant, and instead of reaching out, I'd imagine terrible scenarios and shut down. I buried small hurts like seeds, and they grew beneath the surface until they choked the life from everything good. It felt lonelier than being alone. Becky's patience never wavered. Together, we reminded the eight-year-old lost child inside me that there are better ways to navigate life. A few months back, driving down the highway and singing along with Beyonce, Becky waved a middle finger in my face. I frowned, and she asked me what was wrong. My heart pounded. My tongue froze. Did that offend you? I found it disrespectful, I managed to say. Oh, whatever, she said. She wasn't sympathetic, but I didn't need her to be. I named what bothered me. It was a stupid exchange, common on road trips when people are tired and hungry, but it felt like a magic trick. I was annoyed for a few minutes, but didn't ruin our road trip. I acknowledged my feelings and moved on like a human being instead of a lost child. Bouncing off the walls, going up and down And I just find your heart inside the lost and found Then pick it back up, don't let me hit the ground Pick your own away, how does that sound? I know that I could be a handful sometimes I know that I can be a little sentimental sometimes I love this ending. I think what Aaron did was ask himself, why am I writing this now? Which brought us to the present. 
Such a great ending. There must be something to that scene thing, because this one ends again with scene. It's true. It's powerful. It's good. And we get that he's not a lost child anymore, or at least right now. So we feel good, temporarily. Right, right. But he says it himself. He says it so beautifully that sometimes he's go- that he might fall back into those old patterns. He says there's just the constant fight not to fall back into old habits. There he said it. So like in writing and in life, we regurgitate the same, sorry to use that vomit word, but sometimes we replay the same issues over and over again. It makes me feel better because then I'm like, oh, I do those same things over and over, like my bad temper and screaming at the kids and I don't want to and I'm trying so hard and five days out of six, I'm like really good with my temper and on the sixth day, I like scream and get mad and then I'm like, ugh. I thought I was making so much progress, and we fall back right into it. You know what? Moral of the story is we need writing and uh, medication. (laughs) (laughs) Meditation, not medication. Medication! (laughs) We need writing and medication. (laughs) Sometimes writing is not enough. I can make you love me like I love you, and one day you will say I do, you say I do. Sometimes in class, we end with a quick three-minute prompt. Student Vicki Simon, who you may remember from episode 31, busted this out after I gave the prompt, How Did It End? I love it because it's about the ultimate ending. It ended in the ICU. It ended after I told my mom all the ways she'd left the world in better shape than she found it. It ended after I thanked her for Halloween costumes and birthday cakes and for peeling the hard-boiled eggs in my lunchbox. It ended after I'd filled up my sister's voicemail with messages begging her to come soon. It ended after I'd thanked my mom for teaching me to drive a stick. It ended after I'd sung all the songs my mom used to sing to me when I was little. It ended when I was hoarse with the talking and singing. It ended when I texted my sister for the umpteenth time. It ended when I was sure my mom was sick of my voice because I was sick of my voice. It ended after I pleaded with the doctor to keep her breathing just until morning in case my sister had managed to catch that overnight flight. It ended after the doctor told me he could give her more morphine, but she would die sooner, and I opted for the latter and then regretted it when the doctor had left the floor and my mom started thrashing. It ended after my sister called from the airport. I told you I'd get here and I did, she said. It ended after my sister rushed in and held my mother's hand. It ended before my sister said one word. Thank you for listening to Writing Class Radio. If you love this podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It matters. Ratings help other people find us. If you have a business or a startup, let us help you tell that story. Andrea will come to your office and teach all of your employees how to better articulate what they do and why they do it. Because stories sell. And I am also up for hire. I'll come to your retreat and help guests write through their shit so they can live free. Writing for therapy. That also helps. That sounds like a bumper sticker. Writing Class Radio is produced by Virginia Laura, Andrea Askwitz, and me. 
Allison Langer. Theme music by Ari Herstand. Additional music by Justina Chandler, TJ North, Gillicuddy, Nick Jaina, Kai Angle, Poddington Bear, and Bob Marley. Writing Class Radio is sponsored by and recorded at the University of Miami School of Communication. This episode is sponsored by Gold Valley Consulting. Hire Christina to do the stuff that gets in the way of you making the big bucks. There's more writing class on our website, Twitter, and Facebook. Study the stories we study and listen to our craft talks. Also, you can write along with our community by posting on our daily prompt page or record what you wrote with the voice memo on your cell phone and email it to us at info at writingclassradio.com. Wait, I want to tell people that they can write on our prompt page and give and get feedback from each other. There's a lot of stories on there, so go for it. Our next episode will feature the winner of our 2017 Spring Writing Contest, a response to the prompt, Something You Don't Understand. So tune in to hear that story. We got so many great submissions. It was really hard to choose just one. We love getting your stories, so stay tuned for details about our next writing contest. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? When the local NBC News affiliate interviewed me about it, I explained the most important... What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at ivisonvoice.com slash podcast.